Well, Rob, we appear to have a podcast guardian angel. I still haven't recovered from what just happened. Stressful, to say the least. Yeah, that wasn't particularly pleasant. So basically, I had a really bad computer, which crashed about 10 minutes into the recording with our guest, Andy Martin. And if it hadn't crashed 10 minutes in, we would never have discovered that Andy was talking to us through an interface that the uh, recording app wasn't picking up. And we might have gone on to talk to him for over an hour without recording a word of what he'd been saying. So fortunately, Andy was willing to answer the first question again. And fortunately now for our listeners, the uh, over an hour of conversation with one of the most interesting people in the surf writing business still exists. Oh, horrendous experience, but amazing now. Yeah, one of our nine podcast lives gone on that one, I think, Tom. And uh, obviously we sort of, we interviewed Andy, but it felt a little bit like we'd kind of, interviewed Ted Deerhurst posthumously today as well because that was who uh, Andy's been writing about lately and at the breakfast table your dad said he knew him as well yeah randomly of all the stories dad's told over the years I mentioned that we were interviewing this guy Andy Martin that's written a book about Ted Deerhurst he said oh I knew Ted and he went on to give a load of tales about uh, when he used to own the surf shop in Fourth Call and Ted Deerhurst would come along and try and flog boards that he's that he'd made and they uh, they weren't all uh, they weren't all of a high quality shall we say but you're going to need to listen to the podcast to find out more. So your dad bought them out of sympathy anyway? I think so, yeah. Dad's, dad's what a got guy. Um, a philanthropic heart. But there we are. There's lots to listen to in the show. A great interview, like we said. We really enjoyed it. It was like chatting to a mate come the end. But uh, now's your chance to listen to it. So enjoy the show. Oh, yeah. Cheers, Robbo. <laughs> He's here. It's the surf writer and author of newly released Surf, Sweat and Tears, Andy Martin. We'll ask Andy all about the life and death of Ted Deerhurst as well as other North Shore tales from the edge. And it's proven popular. More of your contributions to the surf trips of your nightmares. So, welcome to Crest, everyone. We're just one episode plus a few minutes into this project and already it feels like our calling in life. To my left, is an author who was shortlisted at the 2015 Ogmore Valley Surf Literary Awards, finishing runner-up in the Toes on the Prose category. It's Tom Anderson. Uh, I prepared this time, Rob. Uh, to my right is the man who turned down a place on the Kylian Rotary Club's honorary list of permanent committee members because he knew a video of him snaking the Monmouth MP David Davis for the wave of the day in Rest Bay was about to surface on Facebook garnering no less than 17 angry views. Not wanting to bring the fine reputation of rotary notaries into disrepute, he opted to lend us the bad publicity instead, and a podcasting career was born. It's Robert Webster Blythe. Thanks, Tom. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. You've been outed about yeah, that one. what I will say, I know. Well, what I will say, Tom, in fairness to me, true to his political form, David Davis was going right, even though it was clearly better to swing to the left on that one. Did you look to make sure? Because uh, he is goofy-footed, isn't he? Um, surely he'd prefer to be frontside on a two-foot rest bay peak. Never mind, it might be a while yet before he gets the chance to return the favour anyway. 
yeah, I've um, I've actually bid to land to it as well, but uh, we'll keep that between us and our rapidly growing audience of loyal listeners, shall we? <laughs> of course you have. Of course you have. Hey, uh, another thing I will say about uh, the right honourable uh, member for Monmouthshire is that we may we may differ on our political views, but he doesn't half respond quickly to uh, the emails and letters, Tom. Really? Three times I've uh, contacted him and always replied within the week, even if it's just to. Uh, disagree with whatever i'm saying all right i i get it republicans buy sneakers too and all that uh, let's introduce our guest anyway shall we definitely with us today is a man whose etiquette in the lineup has had to be beyond reproach especially since he spent a lot of the 80s and 90s on the north shore of oahu during some of its most lawless ages surf writer andy martin is one of the great voices of the sport be it broadcasting or penning his observations for publications like the independent or the new york times Andy's coverage of surf culture is precise, poetic, thoughtful, and above all, exciting. Hi, Andy. Hey, Rob. Tom. Nice to see you. Uh, thanks for coming, Andy. I've uh, enjoyed several of Andy's books over the years, guys, uh, and I stand by my claim to this day that Stealing the Wave, Andy's first uh, first-hand take on the epic and ultimately fatal rivalry between big wave riders Mark Fu and Ken Bradshaw, is the finest surf biography out there. And uh, I'm not alone. The BBC boxing pundit Steve Bunce stated his praise for stealing the wave in simple terms, calling it the finest sports book he'd ever read. Before that, Andy used his experiences of trying to get a foot in the lineups of the North Shore for his autobiographical title, Walking on Water, which was shortlisted for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year. And today, he's going to be speaking to us about as much of this as we've got time for, as well as his newly released surf sweat and tears which essentially lifts the lid on one of the most colorful characters ever to slog it out on the world tour ted deerhurst um andy yes great to see you and you're going to stick around i take it for the the whole podcast so we should be able to get your take on whatever comes up in your hands tom fantastic so this is uh the bit where normally we start with the latest surf news but as at the moment surf news is basically that there isn't any in the water at least. The big feel-good story, though, is that 2004 professional and current ISA world champ Sofia Milanovic has announced the birth of a son, Theo. Considering she was smoking the best of the WSL in Miyazaki only last autumn, that makes for a pretty good spell for Sofia. Crest wishes her congratulations. More positivity, it's now completely legit to hit the lineup again if you live in Portugal. This has led to several moments of envy as friends of ours from there have headed for the beach with the biggest grins you ever did see. Spain, well, we've heard reports from the Canaries that surfing is now allowed between 6 and 10 a.m. and then again after 8 p.m., although there's mixed reports as to how willingly that relaxation has spread to the mainland. And in France, news fresh in is that Something might be afoot for Monday with surfers in certain areas being allowed to return to the waves, but it's all down to the local prefectures and the mayors. Apparently, specific uh, legislation has to be passed before that's going to be allowed. So we'll wait and see from that from Monday. And uh, Andy, I understand that you spoke recently to Hawaiian leg uh, legend Randy Rarick, who said the North Shore is strangely uncrowded right now. Are they allowed in the water there too? Everything is different in Hawaii, isn't it? Yeah, Rani Rarick says that they're loving it in this uh, corona crisis because um, there are no tourists, of course, and the locals have got it all to themselves because uh, apparently, according to the legislation, 
Uh, although you're not allowed to congregate on the beach, you can congregate in the water and go surfing. So as long as you've got a surfboard on your arm, you can get away with virtually anything, it seems to me. So, yeah, um, in Hawaii, they're having a great time. It's good news, isn't it? But I still refuse to watch any of the footage from Hawaii because, I don't know, it's just unbearable seeing people having a good time. <laughs> oh, I tell That's you right. what, I... You talk about a good time. I uh, I wouldn't have gone anywhere near that big bomb that uh, Koa Rothman caught at Pipe. I think it was towards the end of April. Um, just looked like it was the wave of everybody's life, except, you know, obviously you'd have to try and push yourself over the ledge first. Yeah, Pipe I'm just with, a uh, different thing altogether, isn't it? I'm with Andy on this. I've, I've kind of shut down all the uh, the social media stuff that show me waves from anywhere, but somehow that Koa Rothman bomb managed to sneak in through the gap and I did see it and it was it was a wave, all right. <clears throat> Pipeline is, is one of the scariest waves on the planet for sure, actually. And um, I recall even seeing the great Martin Potter, our only number one, I think, if if GB can claim it, uh, back off of a wave at uh, a pipeline in the midst of the contest, moreover, when you, you would have thought he could have taken it, but I checked with him afterwards. He said, mm, no, he just can't, couldn't quite face it. So that's coming from Pop. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, taking off a pipeline. It's, <laughs> uh, it's challenging, whoever you are. And uh, Ted Deerhurst, who you've just written a book about, um, had a slot in the Pipe Masters quite a few times, didn't he? I've seen a fair few photos of him with that iconic 90s Pipe Masters competition jersey with the, the 0101 of uh, of is it Mori? It was a, a Japanese company, I think it was, that used to sponsor the Pipe Masters back then. Should we should we start with um, talking about Ted, Andy? Um, could you perhaps tell us, in in your terms, um, who was Ted and and what did Ted Deerhurst mean to the sport of surfing? Yeah, I think some of those pictures of him at Pipeline might might sum it up rather well. Particularly if you'd also seen a picture of him, you probably saw a picture of him, you know, going into the water and paddling for the wave. But then you also need the picture seeming coming out of the water after he's just blown it for about the tenth time, and then you get the whole picture. Um, <laughs> yeah, Ted and, and and the sports surfing. I mean, you know, the whole story is right there. By the way, he was brilliant at something. Let let me just be fair to Ted. Not everyone was fair to Ted, seems to me. Uh, and at YMA, uh, so he definitely got a rep on on the North Shore as a, as, as a big wave guy. For sure. Um, Rather than a contest guy, but that, of course, was the, the amazing thing. that He persisted, you know, on, on the world shore, despite all the rebuff. Um, yeah, what, what does Ted mean for the, for the sport surfing? Um, well, if you look up the records, you can find that he registered, I think, about, you know, children 31st in the world back in, you know, 1990. Um, so he's there. Say again, sorry, Tom. It's not too shabby. No, I mean, you know, it's significant. And I remember one year he became, he, he was actually equal with Sean Thompson, no less. Although Sean Thompson by that stage was semi-retired and <laughs> just put in one appearance at a contest, I think. But anyway, um, he would have been pleased with that result, nevertheless, I think. So, yeah, Ted, uh, a hero to me and a legend in many ways, dead now over 20 years, died young. Um, age 40, I wrote his obituary. I knew him probably for about 10 years, uh, the last 10 years of his life, um, and was always mystified by how he came to die. 
so young. And that's partly what drove me to write this book about him. But summarizing his life, um, yeah, Lord Ted, as he became known, son of the Earl of Coventry and the daughter of an American hamburger millionaire. Interesting life for sure. Uh, his parents split up and he, uh, his mother took him off to sort of kind of kidnapped him and took him off to the West Coast, California, Santa Monica, um, where he was brought up, took up surfing uh, under the wing of Tony Alvin, the left great skateboard champion. Uh, but then was was kidnapped back again by his father, age 15. Uh, and his mother was chucked in jail, by the way. Uh, so he was kind of torn between cultures. Yeah, he was delighted about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, his his wife, whom I made, didn't remain married for very long, but his wife and I met said that, you know, he stopped growing at that point. Uh, literally and figuratively, perhaps, at age 15. And I think, you know, if you can think uh, just momentarily all the thoughts that you thought age 15, okay, that was what Ted thought uh, all the way through the age of 15. <laughs> <laughs> Which is beautiful uh, and also tragic and, and certainly poignant and actually slightly comic as well. You think of the life of a 15-year-old. but. Um, so that, that, that was Ted, and, and he actually represented Britain uh, as an amateur uh, and then went on to the pro circuit and kept on trying. Did, you know, did, did pretty well and scored a couple of concerts, big sunset, got a, got a semi-final and sunset in the 80s. Um, but um, I, I think that the, the, the moniker, Lord Ted, which he acquired, although technically a Viking, uh, Served him well in some respects in getting him through the door of certain contests, but didn't enable him to win anything because it counted against him where the judges were concerned, who, you know, really tended to privilege uh, underprivileged uh, kids from Brazil, for example, and um, tended to underscore Ted, sadly, so that he, he suffered a bit. But um, nevertheless, he, he was a brilliant guy and had a brilliant life and really had no complaints, I think. It's interesting how he's um, yeah, known internationally then, you know, by that, uh, the moniker, the Lord on the board. Um, yeah. Back here in Britain, I suppose, where, you know, we we know what what lordships and, and what, you know, sort of uh, inheritance is and can mm. mean and what the class system is. It, there was something a little bit more... Um, admiral about what he did you know the, the the dropping out aristocrat you know and i think that really captured people's imaginations and actually there's a there's a planned exhibition of his life too isn't there in the in the family home croom in in worcester this june uh, to accompany the book um i got family just around the corner so i'm going to be making my way there for sure as long as soon as it is safe to do so please do you might not need to come in june as such but that exhibition will be happening and i think it's going to be brilliant i've certainly seen some parts of it and it looks fabulous and it's great that they are you know, paying this homage to, 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 to Ted, for sure, actually. And, and, you know, he'll have appreciated the, uh, you know, the posthumous recognition, you know, rather like Van Gogh, if you think of it, you know, <laughs> a, ignored yeah, in his like lifetime that, yeah. and then dead. Oh, great work, man. So <laughs> I love uh, that similarity, yeah. yeah. That's what he's, yeah, it's, it's like that, I think, actually. But um, I, I mean, within, within yeah, yeah, go on, Andy. Uh, no, please, please, you go. Within surfing, uh, 
Ted moved around with the sort of you know a lot of the elites of surfing didn't he in his time and uh, as a result then you've got to speak to some pretty interesting figures during the research for this book uh, Richard Cram for one and and Sean Thompson what an amazing person Sean Thompson is and and, and what yeah. was he like to meet Thompson's fabulous guy I mean so articulate and um you know, he's one of the brainiest surfers you'll ever run into. You know, obviously we're all geniuses, but uh, uh, you know, he is outstanding. And you know, was doing. If I remember, while he was being world champion, he was also taking a degree in economics at a university in, in South Africa. So he was doing it all. And of course, he made that great film, busting down the door and works for charity. Ah, oh, he's such a lovely guy, and. Uh, he certainly was very helpful to me, and uh, he and Ted formed a bit of a partnership at some stage, one has to say. It's a bit of an ironic partnership in the sense that, you know, um, Thompson was already world champion, I mean, several times over, and but he was still trying to improve, and he actually employed Ted as his videographer, and they would, you know, go through the film of his latest tube ride you know, immediately afterwards. And Thompson would be saying, oh, do you think I could just, you know, finesse that a little bit, just score a few more points? And, you know, would that be just a tiny bit class if I did this or that? And Ted would be offering advice, but muttering under his breath, I wish that was me. So, <laughs> I mean, Ted, you know, wanted to be Thompson, essentially. But, um, but <laughs> there was that. And, and he hoped a bit of the stardust would rub off on him, I, I think, actually. But, you know, he was frustrated in, in, in that. But, yeah, he was great. He was, he was a great, as well as a really good surfer, he was actually a fan of great surfers as, as, as well, actually, and admired what they were doing and, and to some extent replicated it, I, I think. Actually. And uh, speaking of other great surfers, you stayed with uh, Rusty Miller. Um, who was one of the stars of Morning of the Earth and one of the first people, well, the, the, I, I'm, I can't remember if it was him or Steve Cooney who rode the first wave out of the two of them, that the first people to surf Uluwatu, um, which, you know, really is a kind of Shangri-La within the surf world, isn't it? And it's interesting that uh, there's a passage in the book about Ted um, surfing at Padang Padang. And uh, this was something that really stuck with me, the, the tale of how um, Ted got the wave of his life at Padang Padang. And then it turns out that the photographer that was sitting in the channel, I think it was captured from land, wasn't it? But the photographer sitting in the channel had turned the camera off deliberately. And, and, and that seemed typical to me of the, the tragedic and heroic features of Ted, uh, you know, his life and his way of doing things. Why had that happened? Why does somebody turn a camera off when you take off on the wave of your life? I know, it's a fascinating, weird story, that, isn't it? But, yeah, Rusty Miller, Ted, and I certainly had in, in, in there in common. Uli Watson was my first wave, weirdly enough, but, although I got thrown out by an Australian. But anyway, that's another story. But, yeah, and Ted, actually, I would say that was the wave of his life to some extent, for dang, for dang. And it, it was just that, yeah, he was somewhat let down by, dare I say, Dan Merkel. Um, the wonderful Greg Huglin was on, on the shore take, taking footage of, and, and, you know, they were both being paid to do this job. film made by um, Dick, Dick Cool in Australia and um, almost Asian Paradise. And, uh, yeah, and so it looks good. But, yeah, there was Dan Merkel right there in the water, and you can see it. You can look back at the footage of this. And 
head finishes the wave. It's like, you know, imagine you've just stirred the greatest wave of your life. And then the, the sort of greatest water for, cameraman of the era is right there in the water. And you go, ah, oh, that's great. He's just taken the film. And then you look at him and he shakes his head. No. And it's twitched off. There. How'd you like that, man? And um, the reality is Dan Merkel and Ted did, did not get on. And Dan Merkel was one of those guys who had a little bit of a, a grudge against Ted on account of the stupid moniker of Lord Ted. And I, I think he referred to him as Little Lord Fauntleroy at one point, actually, for the American put down. Uh, but Ted was, you know, the hardest, most persistent trier in the world. In no way was he sort of decadent layabout at all. So Merkel had it completely wrong, to my way of thinking. They, they clashed over, over one or two things. And Merkel, and, and to this extent, representative of, of I think, the ASP uh, subsequently, just did not. It failed really mentally, intellectually, was incapable of grasping that Ted was the most serious guy on the planet. Uh, he just thought that, you know, this was kind of frivolous playboy of some kind. Utterly wrong. Uh, but that, that is the deep. And then also, you, you describe how they had argued the evening before because Ted um, was not into or didn't have any respect for the the drug scenes that were so closely intertwined with some of the surfing communities in those decades because this was of course the the busting down the door era after all wasn't it and 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 that was something that they'd they'd argued over the evening before according to the book you know um i think most people who were involved in the early days of the the formation of the, the genesis of the asb and you know the the, the growth, actually, meteoric growth, really, of, of the whole contest scene, you know, they would probably not argue with me if I were to describe the, uh, the, those early days as synonymous with drug trafficking. Um, you know, I mean, to some extent, it was actually funded by... Um, pushing marijuana around the place, around the planet from, from one place to another. And, um, you know, that, that was happening in Indonesia uh, when, when Ted was there. And, um, you know, he was not puritanical, but I think he objected to, to a certain to the criminalization of, of surfing. I think he wanted to, I'm going to think even at that stage, he was very pro-charity. So remember that Ted, Founded this great charity called Excalibur, and now it's become normal to find charity involved in surfing. Then, with the rise of professionalism, it was all about how can I make some money out of this? And drug trafficking, got drug smuggling, and you know, filling your surfboard with with hashish uh, became the norm at a certain point. And Ted revolted against that. Dan Merkel did not agree with Ted. So it was one other um, grudge between them or disagreement. And, and, you know, that partly, amongst many things, really led, led to the, the issue in, in the water. And I still find it bizarre because Merkel really was simply being paid to, to do the job. So 
But although the irony is that although he was claiming that Ted was not serious professional, it was he, Marco, who was insufficiently professional when it came to taking the picture. Yeah, it's a horrible story that is for somebody who can sympathise with uh, that, how important the best wave of your life is. Gosh, I remember being absolutely gutted when uh, Alex Lewis had packed up his camera just a second before I had a little cover-up at Ogmore Rivermouth one morning. So I can't even imagine what it must be like with uh, the wave of your life at Padang Padang. Form of rejection, that is, as well, I suppose. And uh, there was a really interesting, couple of interesting quotes about Ted in the book that really stood out to me. One of them being this idea that he wanted to be rejected. There's also the idea that he had a nostalgia for the future, which I take partly to, I match that up now to that comment you just made about his remaining 15 in his head, you know, that sort of optimism of the teenager with the world in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, I love the way that you talk about Excalibur, the board that Ted shaped and uh, the kind of Arthurian fable that he sort of saw himself in, um, in and, you know, the knight errantry of the way that he lived his life. And then there was also a great uh, hint that I've added to my reading list there. Aaron James's Surfing with Sartre, uh, an aquatic inquiry into a life of meaning. So I've put that on the uh, on the reading list for myself going to the, going forward as well. So there's there's lots of really interesting psychoanalytical and uh, and existential questions that that Ted as a character has raised there. I want to focus on that idea of wanted to be rejected and Ted's relationships with women. Uh, and there's a brilliant sequence in the book when he poisons a love rival they're in boarding school and there's a girl who who he likes and she spends the night with this fella and you say that there's a possibility that ted had to listen to them all night long and then the following morning it turned out that he that he poisoned the guy almost you know and, and could have seriously hurt him what's that all about that that, that is incredible i mean where is that a desire to be rejected i'm not sure i mean that was obviously um Apparently, he assured that this was wonderful woman, Daya, um, a Palestinian-American woman who was at the school with Ted and who was part of that story. He told me about this uh, when, I, when I met her in New York. And, um, you know, the guy in question, by the way, let me assure this is to the podcast, that the guy in question did survive. They didn't <laughs> have to go and bury the body somewhere, you know, or tow him out to sea or something. Uh, he did survive, but he was taken off to hospital and had his stomach pumped. And and Ted uh, assured this very nice woman, Daya, afterwards, well, you know, I didn't intend to do him any serious harm. I just wanted him to feel uncomfortable. And, you know, you think about it. Okay, this hence the 15-year-old brain at work here in the sense that, okay, well, how much rat poison is the right amount exactly? <laughs> so, so you can quantify the amount of discomfort that you're going to cause to your loved rival. I mean, we're trusted a 15 year old to get it, that right. Yeah, it makes sense in the Beano or the Dandy or something, but you know, in reality, anyway. So, you know, he was asking for trouble. Okay. I mean, funny enough, psychoanalytically speaking, we actually did discuss Freud, and I did try to introduce Ted to a psychiatrist in Hawaii, needless to say, and uh, he, he came out with this thing, uh, but, and that is actually true. I've met this psychiatrist and wanted to put them together, but Ted wasn't having it because, first of all, he said, uh, oh, you think I'm mad, don't you? And I said, well, yeah, maybe. And he said, okay, here's the thing. I, perhaps I should go and see the psychiatrist so that I can provide her with a barometer of normality 
by which to judge all the other methods. Of course. A sure sign of madness. <laughs> and I there just, was I, one. Just, okay. yes, so surfers. I think it's surfers, yes. But no, his craziest thing, and, and I mentioned this in the book, and this is what gets him into a lot of trouble, and I don't know if you want to mention the trouble too much, is his theory of the perfect woman. I mean, anyone, and when he started coming out of this theory, which he persisted in, by the way, and we had many conversations, and he took absolutely no notice of anything I said, but nevertheless, you know, I can remember saying to him, well, look, show me the perfect guy, and I'll, I'll show you the, the perfect woman. And, and he, of course, lacking irony, thought I was being serious about this and came up with some sort of like combination of Sean Thompson and Winston Churchill, basically. Yeah, that's the perfect guy. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so similarly, he thought the perfect woman, yeah, he actually had it, the cartoon image in his head of the perfect woman. And I said, look, Mary, even if that was real instead of, you know, some stupid cartoon in your head, uh, you're looking at a world of pain here because, you know, the, 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 you're ruling out 99.99% of, you know, the other half of the human race right there. So why would you do that? So really, yeah, uh, clearly he, he wanted to be rejected. And, and in the end, he, he was very seriously rejected, not just by the perfect woman, but also by the perfect woman's boyfriend. Which, <laughs> well, okay, we'll, we'll avoid the spoilers here but andy you don't think ted died of natural causes do you i don't the funny thing about about hawaii i mean we've discussed it sometimes actually you know hawaii is so mythic and myth-making it's like talking to someone from hollywood i mean it's a certain equivalent of hollywood isn't it so everyone has i mean not just ted with a cartoon in head i mean everyone in hawaii has got some kind of you know mythic brain going on and and so when you actually ask them well, what happened to you know bob or fred or joe on on this on that wednesday of last week especially if it was like 20 years ago um they don't tend to address it you know in in, in the sort of you know clear-cut specific empirical terms that you and i might use and it's just like i'll be cool man and hey there's a breeze coming now i mean there's a there's a big swell coming and, you know, look, you just relax and chill out. And, oh, geez, you know, that drives me completely crazy. Hawaii, you know, I've become a complete background when I hit Hawaii. Normally I'm fairly relaxed about these things and I'm fairly mythic myself in some respects. But, no, Hawaii drives me crazy and I need to know the truth. And so that, that, that's what we took, took me back there and tried to find out what, what hands are for Hawaii has contributed a few of these sort of uh, dubious deaths to surfing hasn't it you know i mean we've got yeah. mystery around what happened to eddie Aikau. Uh, yeah. one passage in the book as well wonderful horrifying passage in the book about eddie Aikau being denied entry to south africa um on account of his skin being too dark and sean thompson having to tell the authorities to let him in uh, heartbreaking uh, and then of course we've got andy irons more recently uh, and then mark foo who who you've written about so um that, that that does seem to be but the funniest thing about the Eddie card story, if, that, if I can tell you that, of course, in, in the golden age, so to speak, of, of apartheid, is you know they had all these categories of, of people in, in South Africa. They weren't quite sure which category the Hawaiian guy fitted into, but they knew it wasn't quite right, whatever it was, and that's why he got shut out. But yeah, you're right. Sean Thompson's dad, it was, in fact, moved it over. 
and 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 made it okay again. And I guess that's why Sean Thompson ended up living in the living in California. And how much of Hawaii's uh, misto is given to it, or or its mystery is given to it by the surf, Andy? There's a great sequence as well about you absolutely eating it at sunset you talk about your brain spooling out of your head uh, and, and it was ted who pushed you over the ledge on that one wasn't it you know you know if we were talking about you know my wife out at sunset we'd be here a long time but yeah that that uh that that was an interesting occasion because ted you know uh i was i was having a, a, a good time at cameras just down, down and ted insisted no you've got to get bigger you've got to come on man get Get serious. You've got to come to sunset. You know, it's in my territory, and of course, I blew it. And, and uh, but Ted was very nice about it, actually. Uh, and and you know, <laughs> helped me out of the water again with blood pouring out of my head. And and so that was a classic Ted thing. That you know, um, you know, mixture of you know disaster and, and comedy and and pain and yeah, you know, kind of the great thing about Hawaii. Is it's full of stories? That that's for sure. You're right. The the, the mystery side of stories uh, of of Hawaii. Uh, you know, everyone has a story to tell. Um, some of them true. I actually I can remember that some one of them thing true. sticks in my mind is I was in a car and somewhere on the North Shore and a fight broke out because one guy described his his wave as twenty foot and some other guy said. <laughs> That was never 20 foot, Matt. I swear, the whole of the bar, apart from me and one other guy, was like in the eye of the storm. It was like a, a western. You know, everyone, was, they were bashing chairs over each other's heads and everything over the size of a wave. Okay, so, you know, this is, yeah, it's a big deal in, in Hawaii. And, and, of course, those things are, are indeterminate as well, actually. So there's always calls for argument and, and dispute, for sure. That's funny. And, and talking of uh, Hawaii, Andy, one of the books that I really enjoyed reading about Hawaii was uh, Chad Smith when um, Welcome to Paradise Now Go to Hell. And there's a comment in your there's a comment in your book about the North Shore which uh, caught my attention. And you described it as not paradise but paradise lost. Now neither Tom nor I have ever been to Hawaii. So how did you start spending time in Hawaii? And how have you seen the place change over the years? Glad my way into Hawaii. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's possible to do it anymore. But uh, somehow I talked my way into to a job of, you believe it, a surfing correspondent at the time. And on the back of that, you know, I got a free ticket to Hawaii to to go and cover the the, the tour there. And um, and of course, I was using all of that as a cover to go surfing myself. So. Everything was was a bit of a con, you know, about three times over. But um, that, but somehow, although I, I I was, you know, yeah, what was I, you know, fake it till you make it, you know, it became serious for me. Yeah. I, I, and and it's a fascinating culture. It's not just the surfing, but because it's so surfing set as well that everyone on the Island has an opinion at some, and you get fights bringing up and so on. But, but I was I was completely drawn into it, and it's just so full of good stories. That being a yeah, you know, a surf reporter, which is what I was, it, it yeah. actually became a you know serious job. I mean, admittedly, it's a little bit like being Father Christmas. You're not you know caught upon that often, but you know, still it was cool when it when it was happening. 
And presumably you've seen it change a lot over the years. Oh, it's a paradise aspect. You, you know, do you want me to say, you know, it was great once upon a time, now it's all gone to pieces. Um, I guess I can't say that because it was terrible and in many respects way back when, actually. So I'm, I'm not going to put that in myth of the golden age. And yeah, you refer to Boston down the door era. Uh, when, you know, people were sleeping with, you know, if it was not a baseball bat under your pillow, it was a shotgun, you could get hold of it. Um, so that, there was a lot of, you know, um, it's, it's a beautiful and fabulous place, and I go back there like a shot tomorrow if there was a flight I could ever get on. Um, but, yeah, it, um, it tends to attract um, the bad guys. And the bad guys get there first. And, and you know, it's got a, and of course, historically, um, Hawaii is a scene of conflict. Um, not just thinking of Captain Kirk and one thinks European contact and uh, sort of accidental um, quasi-genocide. Um, Largely accidental, anyway. But then, and then the annexation by by the states, that kind of conflict. But even going back before that, uh, it, you know, anthropologists say that you know the, the, those that we refer to native wines became nice native wines by virtue of wiping out a pre-existing group of wines. So it, you know, it is a fabulous place, but it's also a scene of incredible violence. And and, and I suppose Ted. And, and my the, the whole story that that I tell somehow kind of you know for me is an allegory of of all of that. Uh, and of course, um, Hawaii was the setting for the big wave rivalries of the eighties and nineties, which you wrote about in Stealing the Wave. And what made that rivalry, the Mark Fu and Ken Bradshaw, so exceptional in in your opinion? Yeah, because there were a lot of rivalries, I suppose. Um, it's partly because I uh, well. For one reason, because of course, Fu died young at, at Maverick, and and so became a let you know died a good-looking corpse, as James Dean would say. And um, so it was partly that, partly because I knew them both quite well. And uh, you know, Ken Bradshaw, the hellman of of the North Shore, uh, showed me how to, I could you know if if I was so moved, how I could bite a chunk out of someone else's surfboard, which is showed me you know, how to hold it at the right angle. and so I never tried it, by the way, but now I know how to do it directly. Um, and he actually he had did it done with you, didn't he? Yeah, he did it with Fu, yeah, and broke, broke his fins off and everything, actually, to intimidate him. And Fu was to something intimidated, but I know, I guess I, I, I love that whole... Um, yeah, well, as, as a writer, it was a great, a great story, the, the two of them, but I liked both of them equally. They were such different guys, and... Uh, I actually thought of them in slightly philosophical terms, and, and um, Bradshaw was very much the kind of loner existentialist kind of hard man but for whom, you know, hell is other people, essentially. And, and Fu was very much this kind of laid-back, sort of zen sort of guy who nevertheless was very shrewd. Uh, and, you know, was an entrepreneur at the same time. So they were very conflicting characters. Um, and that, that was the beauty of it, I, I think. And, and surfing, and, you know, we forget this because, you know, those who don't surf tend to sort of stereotype surface, but, you know, those two guys show that, you know, surfing is just a microcosm. I mean, you've got these incredibly antithetical 
characters within it. Any more characters from your time there, Andy, uh, or from anywhere else that you're thinking might make for a future book? <laughs> I mean, Tom, sorry to crack up in last, but I know you are the author of many, many great works of, of surfing. Uh, countless, I might say. Now, when oh, I, yeah, when you I can't look at Worried or pinch something, fair enough. <laughs> no, <laughs> I've now written, look, he comes with a TED book. That's three books. Okay, I'm counting that as a trilogy. Uh, I, you know, I think a trilogy is cool. Do I want to add a three? <laughs> Sorry to crack up at that. but um, Yeah, this whole podcast has been established as an elaborate ruse so Tom can get some ideas from you because he's, uh, he's got a writer's block. Okay, no, and I know that there are oh, I'm done for. That's it. I... In, in progress even now as we speak. So I should be pinching ideas from you, not the other way around. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm, so... I'm, I'm sharing that David Davis drop okay, with you even right, more widely now, Rob. All right. Here's one character who, who deserves a book because he always used to crack me up. Ace Cool. Now, Ace oh, he's dead cool, now, isn't he? It's the helicopter guy, isn't he? He's the helicopter guy who at certain points certainly claimed to have served <laughs> the biggest wave on, on, on the planet. And I think that was largely true, and I liked him. Now, you you say that he's dead, but now, is he actually dead? Because oh. he disappeared mysteriously. I think I might need to go back to Hawaii to right, check get your pen out. Andy's age. Now we're going, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I'll, I'll move it swiftly on. Andy, your books focus on quite specific elements of surf culture. Uh, and your stories are focused around certain characters. When you start a project, do you have quite a rigid structure that you try to bend your research towards uh, for the purposes of entertainment or interest? Or, or are you more guided by by your research? Is it a more flexible, uh, reactive process? You know, the, the, there's this funny word that I, I kind of tend to live by that is a bit like your pure word and indeed gets pronounced in different ways. But I pronounce it as aleatory. And the Americans when they use it, pronounces aleatory. And it really just means random or chance and um, luck, actually. And, and I would say, you know, all of my books rely entirely on luck. They're aleatorical work. I mean, you know, they, they, um, they're just accidental, and they just somehow get stuck together. Um, and it's just, you know, I feel like one of those photographers who's just lucky to be in the right place at, at, at the right time. And, yeah. and those stories just, just come to you if you wait for them. So, yeah, so to answer your question, I, I, I don't feel as though I have to do anything very much other than listen to what, what, what people say, which it doesn't seem like very hard work, does it? But uh, I think it's Hawaii helps. Oh, yeah, that, that, of course. But I think some of those stories are just so good. You've just got to get out of the way of them, really, and just let them t t tell themselves, I, I think. I, I yeah. think that's what I try to do. I try not to work too hard, in other words. <laughs> yeah, I can, uh, I can get on board with that. So, as I alluded to in our first show, when discussing um, some more recent changes to pro surfing, I, I feel that surfing is unique as a sport in that most surfers feel quite a keen sense of ownership. They're, they're quite protective of it. Does this influence what you choose to write or not to write, as the case may be, so as to avoid offending or alienating people, often presumably friends, colleagues, heroes? And what I mean by that is obviously when 
when you're relaying these stories, uh, you can't please everyone all of the time. Do you feel that you perhaps hold off on some things, especially when you're when you're writing about such esteemed or notable characters? Um, I do uh, hold back sometimes, particularly if it's Johnny Boy Gomes who's in question. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. And especially if he's just pulled a screwdriver out of his pocket and is yeah. not planning to do any DIY unless it's on me. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I have been known in certain circumstances to back off fun enough. And uh, yeah, and there was one other case I can where where I, I thought, oh yeah, that'd be a very good story. And, and you know, the Times of London would be interested to hear this. Um, Mr. X, wouldn't they? And Mr. X said, I don't think that's a good idea, man. And you know what? I agreed with him that it was yeah, not a good idea. And, and so. Uh, I think there's certain circumstances where, you know, in order to be able to do your job, you still need to be able to walk, by and large, I find. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, you know, but yeah, uh, I, you know, I try to, to, to be fair and tell the stories and, you know, will sometimes get you into trouble. Uh, at trying to, you know, be as truthful as, as possible, if that's not too ridiculous. But so, for example, okay, in terms of the book you mentioned, um, seeing the wave, I mean, the funny thing really about that was Mark Fu was much easier to interview being dead than Ken Bradshaw, who was alive, of course. And uh, Bradshaw very quickly, and so afterwards, uh, Bradshaw read the book, and he first of all said, hey, that's, that's a cool book, man, and phoned me up and said so. And then someone happened to say to him, hey, Ken, but you're the bad guy. <laughs> he called me back and said, am I the bad guy? <laughs> and I tried to assure him that since this was not a Tom and Jerry cartoon, that there was no clear cut good guy and bad guy, and that there was a certain complexity to the whole thing. And he, you know, he'd just have to roll with it. So I don't know. I, I you know, I try to be kind of fair, yeah, to okay. everyone, and and including the reader, by the of way, course, and not yeah. just the the guys who are in it. I, I suppose that was this. I mean, I'll touch on this briefly. There's been. Uh... A criticism kind of leveled at the surf industry of, of years gone by where mm. certain characters notable people he, people that many many regarded as heroes were kind of protected from the full truth ever being exposed and it's and i mean in the case of andy irons people yeah. argue that it cost him his life but so that's mm. another podcast in the works there so I, i've actually got a couple of questions that right. um, i'm going to try and throw tom off here by posing to both of you as authors so um and it's a problem that i imagine you both had to wrestle with uh, at some point in your writing careers that surfing is so often misrepresented in popular culture and by non non-surfing media in films in music in the news that i think it it kind of plays into that protectiveness that i talked about earlier that the community feel towards surfing how, how do you both as surfers surfers and writers they're obviously trying to reach as broad an audience as possible with regards to your sales of your books. Um, how do you strike that balance between staying true to surfing as we know it, whilst also making it accessible for non-surfers, for the layperson? And th there's an example that's often lauded as getting it just right, and that is Barbarian Days by uh, William Finnegan, which is loved by surfers and non-surfers in equal measure. So how do you achieve that, that delicate balance? Do you want to take it away, Tom, to start with? Well. Yeah, when when um, 
I was putting together my first book when it wasn't yet published. Um, the poet Sheena Pugh um, was my creative writing tutor, and she told me about um, she she really liked um, just using the surf lingo and leaving it there. And uh, and then actually Summersdale maybe put a glossary in the back, but Sheena Pugh used to call it the tale of the Jabberwocky. So she used to say, oh, look, leave this paragraph. It's a tale of the Jabberwocky, as in, in the tale of the Jabberwocky, we know the noises mean something and we don't really care what they mean because we know they mean something to someone. Uh, and I suppose I, I like listening to crickets on the radio, uh, you know, and, and, and often I love all the terminology and I love not quite getting it. So I used to sort of think about what it was like to listen to cricket and not quite get everything or listen to complex economics on Radio 4 and not quite get it. And uh, and I just used to think I want to create that kind of feeling for someone who who doesn't get it. As long as you try and make it a bit lyrical and you sound like you know what you're on about, um, I I kind of trust that people will go with me. But like I said, Summersdale did make me stick a glossary in the back of uh, riding the magic carpet. <laughs> uh, and Daddy, how do you how do you go about kind of forging that gap? Well, of course, I, I feel as though you know you're doomed to failure, aren't you? At some level, actually, uh, pitching. Seeking perfection there. Um, yeah, Finnegan definitely managed to strike the right note, I think, in the Barbarian days. Um, and persisted, actually, and that's one of the like, heroic things about him. Not a pro performer, but certainly persisted incredibly with, with certain state, state true to it, I guess, actually. Still, I believe on, on the East Coast, I was in touch with him not so long ago, on the East Coast of the state. Actually, no, based based in New York, last I heard. But um, I, I think the the only way that you, you can approach it is um, not not to stereotype it. Actually, just just treat it as 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 part of the grand continuum that is that is life and death and being and nothingness, and all all of that gets somehow you know symbolized in surfing and and the thing is just to sort of extract it back out of surfing and try to tell that story which is you know like everything all at once and you've got to grapple with it and not treat it as something kind of marginal and eccentric and Mm. slightly off the grid in a way it's all of those things but but it's also a kind of you know it's just Summarizes all of the kind of you know the pain and pleasure of you know existence generally. Yeah, yeah, I understand. And, yeah. and, and the aspiration actually, and and the failure, and the you know fundamental benevolence and the malice that is you know it, within humanity. I feel that surfers are always quite uh, welcoming of of surfers being the the people that put that kind of content out there rather than. The likes of the, the the mainstream media in I say that in in yeah. bars, that that all too often get it wrong. It's usually um, if if it ever appears on the news, or quite often when it appears on the news, it'll be footage of someone who can't actually surf in the shallows to the to the tune of the Beach Boys. And don't get me wrong, I love the Beach Boys. I've, I went to see them last year in Cardiff. That's good. It's yeah. um, it's there's there's more to surfing than that, and in many people's eyes, I think that that is surfing kind of encapsulated now. In, yeah, and I, 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 sorry, sorry, I was yeah, going to say, you, I take you your point about the, 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 the surf media industry who kind of gloss over a lot of, you know, the thing of the Andy Iron 
meditation in particular. And, you know, I hate that really. And I've never felt I've been part of that. Really why, you know, work for other parts of the media, if you like, because it seems to, you know, you know, it, it was like an absurd, you know, antithesis to the stereotyping that, that came from, you know, the non-surfing media, if you like, actually tried to counterpoint that, but it seems just as wrong. So I, I guess, yeah, one, one tries to avoid those the, the, the ob- obvious absurdities, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. Now, in, in many people's eyes, mine included, style is the most important thing in surfing. And if not the most important thing, certainly very, very important. And although we all have our own unique styles and they really are unique, you know, uh, I can, at our local beach at Respe, I can tell who's in the water at low tide from a couple hundred meters away, looking into the sun just by the way someone holds their arms. But although we all have these unique styles, we also like to borrow elements from certain people whose styles we admire. Would you say it's a similar thing with writing? We, we all have our favorite authors, but as authors yourselves, is there anyone's style that you're particularly inspired or influenced by or, or try to mimic or channel to any extent? Yeah, I, I get nervous inspired. answering that one. <laughs> well, hold on. There's this guy called Tom Anderson. I think he influenced <laughs> quite, quite a bit, actually. Over I'm getting whitewashed by the press here. You get, uh, <laughs> um, but... No, there, there, there's so many writers, and um, I mean Jack London. I admire his, his writing about surfing once upon a time, actually. And I mean, you know, better not start listing people because I'll leave people out, and they'll be phoning up and getting yeah. offended. So okay. uh, I worry in about the end, I, you know, you try to. I, what I would say is, um, I try to forget about the writing. And, and, you know, the influences and, and so on. I, I know what you mean, because I can certainly remember, you know, that it were parishing while it was in bygone days. And I forget about writing and just think more about the reader, to be honest. It's, and, it's and, interesting what uh, you say there, Andy, yeah. about you kind of forget about it and let it let it happen. Because I suppose that's, yeah. the same, that's the same thing in surfing. If you're, like, if you're perhaps on a really critical wave, you, you're not thinking about anything other than the, the couple of meters in front of you. Yeah. There's yeah. a parity there. That's right. It's only, you know, as we said, when you come off the end of the wave and you want, you know, someone to be there applauding you. Same with <laughs> or writing, filming you, as the case may be. Or filming you. Yeah, you know, you definitely you definitely want that. So there, there's a point in, in the middle of the whole thing. You're right. When you're really trying to surf the wave properly, where it's just you and the wave. And it's just you and the words. Uh, and, um, you know, you forget about every, everything else, actually. But really, you know, I, I sort of like to imagine I'm just talking to someone sitting on the sofa next to me, you know, at an appropriate distance, of course, now, but nevertheless, you know, with some degree of proximity and, you know, probably more as if rather as now, I'm just having a conversation with you. So I probably, as I've got older, I've probably got more oral, so to speak, rather than more, more literary. I think. Okay. I get nervous answering that question because yeah, I, I kind of feel as if you're I'm, saying I'm gonna, I, we're going to have an awful. Well, fingers crossed, we're going to have an awful lot of time to discuss your your uh, writing styles on future episodes. So I'm going to excuse <laughs> yeah. you for this one if you don't mind. Oh, thank and, you because I don't want to get uh, hung up. But I will say Andy's in safe territory, trying to say that he wants to write as well as me because he's definitely uh, far beyond already. <laughs> well, Andy, I'm going to bring uh, a couple of moments ago when we were talking about. Um, uh, on the last question, talking about William Finnegan, and we talked. You mentioned briefly the east coast of uh, the United 
States. Yeah. And you've been, am I right in saying that you've been based in New York at some point in your career? Yes, often not. And you, you covered the Quicksilver Pro uh, New York back in 2011 for the, was it, was that the New York Times or the Independent? Yeah, that, that was a funny one. And that, that was like a miracle because for starters, it was, um, you know, on, on Long Island where, you know, the surf is notoriously flaky and they actually have one of the best worlds, I think. Was what? it? That, well, I was going to say that. So that's an it's an event that's remembered very fondly by fans of, of professional mm. surfing from the yeah. for the fact that the many people surprised they they lucked into those firing waves in New York through to the fireworks in the water with Slater's uh, kind of hail mary ten point ride in that semi final through to oh. the the fireworks on land with that that infamous clip that started as a Todd Klein post post win interview with Bobby Martinez after one of his heats. And it kind of ended as a, a monologue or a, a diatribe railing against the ASP as it was then and their tennis tour mentality. So it, it was an electric event for viewers. What was it like being there? Uh, well, of course, I was naturally missing a lot of it. And uh, I'm glad you reminded me of some of those things because we were actually doing this funny thing. It was actually for the New York Times, uh, but I was shooting a film. In fact, with a, with a couple of guys, which I think we called, um, which, which, you know, listeners can, I think it's still on the New York Times website somewhere, actually. Uh, I think it's called, it, was it called Miracle in New York? Was that it? Or Fairy Tale of New York? Fairy Tale of New York. Those, yeah. Surfing Fairy Tale of New York, I think it is, actually. God, have you seen that? I think I've, yeah, been, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah okay. We're, we're, <laughs> you know, we took this guy from a Quicksilver shop in fact actually a store in, in Times Square that's right uh, and he was he, he was a surfer but from the south of, of the state uh, I think possibly Florida um, and he was a good surfer in, in small ways and we took him from there we were going to build this little documentary around him uh, which was also a fairy tale and by the way somehow Freud got in there as well actually I, I was reading out some of um, one of Freud's texts actually uh, was it Civilization It's Discontents? Yeah, that one, actually. It, so it's a very weird surf movie. Just a warning for anyone who might want to look this up. But the, the funny thing about that was, okay, so we inserted our, our friend from the Quicksilver store into the contest, so to speak, in these big waves. But it, but it was too big for him. He said, man, I've never surfed waves as big as this before. How do you expect me to do this? So we actually had to sort of uh, work around it to some extent and and build in a lot more footage from the concept itself than, than actual, you know, real, genuine, hardcore surfing from our, from our main protagonist, in fact. But still, it, it, worked. it worked quite well simply because, of course, the notion of surfing in New York is itself so, so unlikely. But there, it shows it can happen. Yeah, I've uh, I've surfed in New York, um, and it it is odd. It feels like you shouldn't be surfing there. I've been in that Times mm. Square surf shop actually. I think I wrote some quite disparaging comments about the place in Chasing <laughs> Dean's. I hope that poor fellow wasn't uh, wasn't mentioned in that. But yeah, that 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 Rockaway Beach contest. I thought that was one of the best contests ever um, to watch. I think partly as well, the US East Coast is perfectly time zoned for watching the finals take place on your couch as night falls over here in Europe. Uh, sounds like a dream. Uh, surf trip to me to to go over there when when all of that's going on S- such exciting surfing and uh, history being made and the waves looked really really good fun to surf as well and and actually dream surf trips uh, now that is a million miles away from where we want to be 
um, with the feature that we've been uh, that we're going to be using to to close our shows out uh, for the uh, immediate future, at least. Um, yeah, back by popular demand, guys. Uh, last and definitely not least, um, we're going to have another look at uh, surf trip horror stories. Uh, Rob, over to you. Yes, thanks, Tom. So of the correspondence we've had since uh, our maiden show that uh, went out last week, a lot of it has been about these uh, kind of surf trip horror stories, as you, as you termed it, or the worst surf trips ever. And last week we said we want to find out about the parts of surf trips that suck, that we, we absolutely don't miss whatsoever, tied us over whilst we're all kind of, well, self-isolating um, at the moment. And we had a message, uh, well, we had several uh, messages submitted to us, but this one in particular kind of um, made my ears prick up. And it's from someone that I know you and I, Tom, both hold in, in high regard and someone that we've watched growing up and kind of idolized it on a local level. And that is uh, Mr. Gary Lewis, for your benefit, Andy, Gary is uh, one of this term is banded around too often. Legend, but he is a legend of our local scene. He's he's one of those guys that seems to have always been around, and uh, he's he's well travelled and he surfs really well. And this is from submitted by him about a, a trip he recently went on with a few of the other local guys. And I'm just going to read it straight through, and uh, it's it's a shocker, Tom. Let's go for it. So. The most recent memory of when a surf trip uh, takes an unexpected turn for the worse happened just a few months ago on what's now become an annual trip to Morocco. This year, I felt I needed to blend in with the local hipsters of uh, Tagazoo, so I brought along George Schofield and Richard Vaughan, complete with their man buns and beards, well, George at least, and also Dr. Gus for someone to drink beers with. And just as an aside, I heard lots of beers were drunk. There's a few stories George's got about this one too. We lucked into a pretty solid week of swell and based our daily missions around low tide anchor point. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the setup here, and it's without doubt the wave that you want to score at least a few times during any trip. The newly renovated car park, renovated meaning moving the piles of rubble somewhere else prior to the QS event, uh, the recent QS event that took place there, sits atop a small rocky headland. This iconic headland has a half-broken set of steps leading to the notoriously treacherous jump-off platforms and the adjacent rocks and sand gullies that are popular with families and fishermen alike. There's a lot of human traffic using these steps and pathways that snake off from them, and I've guessed that it's about a 25-foot drop from the car park to the sea level, and you'll shortly hear about why this is relevant. The car park is a great place to hang out, and as a result, there's always a few small camps based around the travelling surfers' campers, along with the assorted converted VW and Mercedes trucks and vans. It can become a bit congested at certain peak times and often results in a bit of chest trying to manoeuvre your hire car or van back out to the road. About a week into our trip, and everyone had mostly recovered from an absolute disaster of a surf uh, at boilers a few days previously, when all four of us, being far too manly to wear boots, got absolutely vaporised in sequence. One by one, whilst all the most critical, uh, sorry, whilst at the most critical point of trying to exit the lineup. I'm not exaggerating when estimating well in excess of 200 urchins between all of us, as well as a fair bit of blood loss by Rich in particular. Anyway, back to anchors. And we were all back in the water. I'd had my fill of runners and head dips and the donuts were calling me. So I was out sitting on the bonnet of the hire car, not cold gar, by the way, soaking up the sun and watching the action. I saw George and Gus walking towards me, having just climbed the stairs, sunburned and smiling. And at this point, 
The two-turned VW lorry slash camper that was parked by the side of us started reversing back towards them. I assume they were just repositioning themselves to make their way out of the car park. It didn't really register at first how quietly it was heading towards the boys or how quickly it was picking up speed. Luckily, the boys were looking up towards me and not back at the lineup, as we all do at least a dozen times, especially when the peanut gallery starts to whistle in a set. They scurried out of its path at precisely the same time I registered that the engine wasn't running and there was nobody driving. I felt instantly sick and helpless at the same time. The truck had now reached the point where nothing was going to stop it launching, backwards over the headland, uh, directly onto the path below. Same path the boys had been walking on uh, 30 seconds previously, and no doubt where the other people, where lots of other people were now in the close vicinity of. Well, as they say, time slows down in the tube, and it certainly slowed down for me in that situation. But about five seconds before the inevitable carnage, things got infinitely worse. A young woman appeared in the window of the truck with a look on her face that I'll never forget. We locked eyes, and she mouthed some words that didn't register with me, and then just as quickly she disappeared and the truck went over the headland. There was a stunned silence at what had just happened, closely followed by some hysterical screams, and that was just from George. The reason I can make a joke about it now is that despite the odds of there being multiple fatalities, the truck didn't land on anyone, and the girl survived with nothing but a few minor bumps and scrapes. She later explained how she was in the back of the van and thinking she heard a door open. We now assume that that was the sound of the handbrake failing, and when I locked eyes with her, she was looking for the handbrake. However, it wasn't her truck and she couldn't find it in time. She then dived into the back again and tried the side door, but it wouldn't open. So she just curled up in the fetal position and hoped for the best. The van buckled and imploded all around her. The odds of a story like this ending in the way it did are pretty slim. And so our trip ended on a high, apart from our flights being cancelled due to the weekend storms closing down Gatwick for pretty much the first time ever. But that's another story. Well... I, uh, when I read that from Gary, that there's a, a, a moment in it where he said he felt instantly sick and helpless. And I'm sure you both got had moments like that on your travels, but I, I can think of a couple. And it, you, it tends to happen in, in developing countries where you, you see just something horrific happening and you just know there's not the, the support or the infrastructure to, to resolve it adequately. And it, it made the, the hairs on my arm stand up. What a shocker, hey? Yeah, that's, uh, that's horrible. Um, Andy, you got any... Uh horrendous surf trip mishaps you know every every surf trip i've i've been on basically is is series of comedy of errors really and series of mishaps but two stories that you know register in my mind is not really trips of of mine but one which i think people will appreciate because you know i think the reason people appreciate this story is things going wrong i think things going wrong is more interesting as a story than things going right so a friend of mine, doctor, took, took a job in South Africa, surfing doctor, by the way, ophthalmologist, in fact, but uh, wanted to surf Cape Town. And so he took this job for several months, I think it was. Ah, oh, that's great. That's going to be perfect for me. Found himself, he, uh, um, his hospital was actually in Johannesburg, and he hadn't really checked sufficiently beforehand. He thought everything was in Cape Town. Several hundred miles in the beach. So he'd <laughs> gone there for several months and was further away from the beach than he was in London. Uh, so that was possibly one of the worst trips of all time. Although I believe he did eventually get to Cape Town where he wasn't too busy at the hospital. Okay, fine. But the one that, that really is historical to me 
because it goes back to the 80s. This is a Californian guy. He's on a surf trip in Europe. Fine, but at one point he got on the wrong plane. Got off at Ber- in Berlin. And okay, this is the interesting thing. When the Berlin Wall was still intact, so he gets off and goes, oh, okay, well, I might as well go and check out the wall while I'm here, but was already pissed off. So gets to the wall, sees all these kind of border guards, you know, trying to stop East Germans coming over to the West, and shouts up at them. <clears throat> and this, I believe, is historically uh, testified and then documented. <clears throat> uh, shouts up at them, man, you are bombed because you will never know what true surfing really is. <laughs> and uh, the funny thing about that is that he was wrong, because Michael Scott Moore uh, has shown in his record about surfing, uh, and, and he's half German, Michael Scott Moore, half German-American, that he a- actually interviewed some of the Berlin Wall border guards afterwards, and they turned out to be surfers. So there you go. So they actually did know what true surfing really was. And, and that's a fact. So you can be a surfer and a border guard. And there are some not bad waves in Germany. There's quite big surfing culture in Germany, surprisingly. So there you go. Californian guy, you ridiculously stereotype those poor old German border guards. There you go. <laughs> I like that. That's, um, that's a fab one. And we want more tales from our listeners, please. So if you've got any, then please do submit them to us at castcrest at gmail.com. That's castcrest at gmail.com. Well, yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, we, we've been trying to sort of dampen the stoke. So uh, we've done our best for that last bit. Perfect way to end. Uh, the section uh, has proven to be something lots of our surf trip starved listeners have been contacting us with suggestions for. I think it makes people feel better, doesn't it? Remembering why nobody misses surf trips. Keep telling ourselves that and it will become true. Until we can go on them again and then it's job done anyway. Uh, Perhaps we'll have to do a whole podcast on surf trip nightmares sometime. Uh, I wonder who the guest would be. As for today's guest, Andy Martin, a big thank you for your time. Uh, It's been a joy. The Uh, book is out now. Rob, Tom, that that, that was great. And I'm not going to say anything about my all-time worst whale. Surf trip, by the way, just because oh, you know, I I don't to get you back it, it, it was raining so hard, I couldn't even see the waves. So that, um, so I don't need to mention that at all. Oh, great! Uh, <laughs> waves are usually pumping when the weather's like that, anyway. And Andy's book is out now with all books. For our next episode, we're going to be talking to one of the most decorated Welsh surfers and renowned charger, James Rhino Thomas. From competing against an informed Shane Beshan in all-time Huntington, to charging frigid UK bombs or the sweltering wilds of the Mentawi Islands, he's got some tales, all right. Until then, keep the stoke, guys. Thanks for listening. Hoyle Bauer, a well-a-chia-tronessa, Cheers, Ed. Bye. Aloha.